0: Around 2,000 years ago, in a remote corner of the Roman Empire, a holy man taught a message of peace. He was reported to feed the hungry, heal the sick, and because of this, some of his followers proclaimed him as God incarnate. It was also said that he ascended into heaven. His name, Apollonius of Tyana. Around the exact same time, there was another holy man who was reported to be able to heal the sick from a distance. He was known for his great righteousness and poverty. His name, Hanina Bendosa. There was an itinerant preacher around this exact same time in the Holy Land who called himself the King of the Jews. And his disciples believed him to be the promised Messiah. However, just after Passover one year, he was executed by the Romans outside the city walls in full view of his followers. His name, of course, was Simon of Perea. But wait, there's more. At the same time, in the same part of the world, a wandering preacher claimed himself to be the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. His reputation spread throughout the entire Roman Empire, and his many followers worshiped him as God and Savior. His name? Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician. In fact, this guy's celebrity was so strong that he even made it into the Brit HaChadashah. In Acts, his ego seems to be bruised by the growing sect of Messianic Judaism, and he offers to buy, with money, a baptism in the Holy Spirit from Shimon Kepas, from Simon Peter. Needless to say, things did not end well for Simon Magus. Reuben, the righteous one. Honi, the circle drawer. All contemporaries of Yeshua and his disciples. Theodos, the Galilean, another one. He promised hundreds of his followers that he would divide the Jordan River just as Moses divided the Reed Sea. And of course, when he failed absolutely miserably to do this, the Romans executed him and all of his followers scattered and he was heard from no more. Flash in the pan would-be messiahs in the Holy Land and second temple times, brothers and sisters, were a dime a dozen. And what do all these guys have in common? When they died, their reputations died with them. But then there was a promising young man from Nazareth. After he died... The most wonderful thing happened that has ever happened or will ever happen, happened. He rose from the dead. He resurrected. Now, the most skeptical agnostic, the most dismissive atheist cannot deny the fact that Messianic Judaism and later Christianity only increased because Yeshua's followers were absolutely, positively 100 percent convinced that Yeshua rose from the dead. This you cannot dispute. At the absolute minimum, the most skeptical agnostic and the most dismissive atheist must at least have the spot to admit that his disciples saw something. They saw something. And please, I beg you, don't give me the same old tired, worn out, raggedy explanations thrown around in every circle who denies the resurrection. Please don't tell me that the disciples stole the body from the tomb. If you believe that a group of panic-stricken, underfed fishermen with no weapons overpowered some of the best-trained commandos in the Roman army, rolled away the stone without said Roman commandos waking up and killing all 11 of them, I'm scared for you. I really am. Don't tell me the most tired one of all, mass hysteria or mass hypnosis. Listen, I I minored in clinical psychology in college with a concentration in the neurobiology of behavior. Only 10%, 10% of any given population are suggestive enough that they can fall under such hypnosis. David Mary Hallard, you all know that I love you. David and Sandy Farouz, do you all know that I love you? Those of you that have been in this congregation for less than one year, please raise your hand if anyone here thinks that they're going to hypnotize either Mary Haller or Sandy Farouz. Good luck. All four of the Gospels portray Simon Peter as being the most bullheaded person in the world. I bet my life 10 times over that someone as stubborn and bullheaded as Simon Peter could be hypnotized enough to later die for it. This is the thing about mass hysteria. It does happen. I'm not denying that. The Salem witch trials, the spread of Nazism the followers of Jim Jones, just to name a few, all fall under the umbrella of mass hysteria and mass delusion. But these stayed together in their own groups, and by and large were surrounded by people who agreed with them 100% of the time. Now, this is the cornerstone of pathological mob behavior, and it's the cornerstone of cults. You're isolated, with a like-minded group, and you avoid outsiders with different ideas like the plague. The spread of Messianic Judaism after the ascension of Messiah was just the opposite. Go ye and make disciples of all nations. And each of the disciples broke apart from their little group, and all went out in different directions, and they encountered hostility, persecution, and in most cases, martyrdom. That is the polar opposite dynamic of mass hysteria. So please, put that one away. I'm getting getting my dander up. Please, also put away into the dustbin of absolute nonsense that they were so grieved of the crucifixion of Yeshua that they all together saw a hallucination of Yeshua risen as a way to deal with their grief. It's been known beyond any shadow of a doubt that since we began scanning brains in the early 90s that this is absolutely neurologically impossible. Let me say that again. It is neurologically impossible for two or more people to have the exact same hallucination at the exact same time. So if you believe any of these, please go try to convince someone else, because I promise you, I've had each of these arguments a dozen times each. Thank you for enduring my rant. This morning, we're going to consider this something that they saw. Now, we must must remember, brothers and sisters, that we are viewing our modern notions of resurrection and the afterlife, for that matter, through the lens of 2,000 years of rabbinic and Christian teaching. The truth of the matter is, is that the Scripture really only gives us kind of scattered and rather vague glimpses of the nature of the resurrection. The ideas of this in the ancient world had not quite yet crystallized. If you were a really great Greek or Roman, I mean, if you were really something else, after you died, you might be transformed into a star. This is where the concept of constellations and horoscopes and myths about them originate. But for the common citizen, like you and I, like everyone in the synagogue... The afterlife was depressing. In the Greco-Roman world, when you died, you went to the underworld. You went to Hades, where your shada, where we get the English words "shadow" and "shade" come from, which was just kind of a faint spirit of who you were before you died. Your shada would just kind of wander around Hades with all the other shadas. This is a far cry from our modern idea of a blissful afterlife. Your Shada just kind of wandered around in this dank, cold, dark, cavernous place for all eternity. Now, you would recognize the Shadas of your dead friends and relatives, but this was no happy reunion. I think about everyone alive has a very similar shared experience of having that one childhood friend that for years at a time you were inseparable. But then you grew up, and you played together less and less, and then high school hit, and you were little more than just another anonymous face that you would pass in the halls. Seeing your friends and relatives in Hades was just like that. Moreover, Greco-Romans had zero conception about being born in the image of a loving God. Thus, your shada appeared how you appeared at your death. If you died of the plague, your shada would have all the, the festering sores of the plague. If you were stabbed to death, your shada would still be bleeding from open wounds for all eternity. If you died by falling from a great distance and broke your back, your Shada would be an invalid in Hades. So, to the Greco-Roman, the idea of resurrection, I mean, to a Greco-Roman, they, they, would, they would have been like, resurrection? Are you kidding me? What are you, some kind of Fool! Why would I want to be resurrected in this smallpox, scarred body with half of my teeth rotted out as it is, and this incredible arthritis and gout that I suffer with every day? Resurrection. Get out of my face. That would have been their attitude, and this is why. Who has ever done a Bible study on 1 Corinthians? Okay, well, in Rav Shaul's letter to the First Corinthians, and I believe it's chapter 15... In Rob Shaul's letter to the very Greco-Roman Corinthians, this is specifically why they wanted absolutely nothing to do with the resurrection of Yeshua. They didn't believe in resurrection. And of course, Rob Shaul had to set them straight about it, but now you know why that is. A Greco-Roman, curiously enough, was fine with the idea of ghosts and things like that wandering the earth. But bodily resurrection? Um, ew. Pardon me. Now, in contrast, there were us Jews. We believed in a vast, underground, cavernous grave that we called Sheol. And when you died, your soul, your nefesh, went underground and slept. A more nuanced belief of this that developed a little bit later is that there was a part of Sheol where the presence of God reached, and the righteous ones seemed to sleep in this area, but that Sheol was so vast that there was an area that even God's presence could not touch, and this is where the unrighteous would lay, completely separated from God, and it was awful Now, Isaiah, in his writings, seems to write about the more awful parts of Sheol for all the enemies of Israel, but we do have an interesting glimpse, maybe, into perhaps the the more closer to God portion of Sheol. In fact, um, two weeks ago to the day, Rabbi David gave a sermon in which he alluded to an episode in 1 Samuel chapter 28 where King Saul, by this point in the story, is just so mentally and spiritually lost, lost that he disobeys even his own laws. And he consults a medium for the, the skinny on his future. He asks a woman that we now know as the witch of Endor, quote-unquote, to, to conjure up the spirit of Samuel who had died. Although Isaiah alludes to Sheol as a very dismal, dark, foreboding place, when Samuel's spirit is brought up, in most translations of the Scripture, Samuel is quoted as saying, why did you disturb me? But actually, this Hebrew word really kind of means, why did you stir me? As in, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Why did you stir me from my sleep. Now, think about this. Samuel's spirit did not say, oh, Saul, God bless you. I was miserable down there. That place is awful. I I mean, hey, man, I'm sorry you had to consult a witch to do it, but hey, I'll take what I can get. Thank you for getting me out of there, man. Uh Uh-uh. Samuel says, you woke me up. Dude, you woke me up. We have all had those mornings where we're sleeping so peacefully and so cozy under our covers and we're having the most blissful dream and then brr, the, arm, the alarm clock jars us awake and we have that sinking, ugh, before we know we got to get up and go on with life. I'm just speculating, of course, but I wonder if the spirit of Samuel was referring to a blissful sleep like that. Who knows? I, I don't. Pardon me again. But then, in Jewish history, the horrific events surrounding Hanukkah happened. The Maccabean revolt against Antiochus IV. Jews were being tortured to death, left and right for living halakha. And there was a simmering belief that God was so good that certainly he would have pity on those righteous who suffered so and resurrect them to everlasting life within renewed bodies. The books that describe the events of Hanukkah most closely are 1st and 2nd Maccabees. In 2nd Maccabees, there is the story of a widow woman with seven sons, all of them really sadistically killed in ways I don't really even want to think about nor describe, but all of them had to not only endure being tortured, dismembered to death, but they had to endure watching this happen to each other. One of the sons at the point of his death is quoted as saying to his killer, you accursed one. You are depriving us of this present life, but the king of this world will raise us up To live again forever. For it is for his laws that we are dying. After watching several of his brothers brutally die. And knowing the fate that awaited him. He bravely sticks out his tongue. And he holds out his hands. And he says, it was from heaven that I received these. And compared to his laws, they're worth nothing to me. And from him, I expect to get them back, thus implying not only resurrection, but in some sort of renewed body. Now, brothers and sisters, the books of Maccabees are not canonical, but this crystallizing belief in resurrection is expressed within the book of Daniel. Daniel 12 states that in the end times, at that point your people shall escape. Everyone who is found written in the book of life, many of those who sleep in the dusts of the earth shall awake. Some shall live forever. Others shall be an everlasting horror and disgrace. Now we're going to get real. I'm paraphrasing from Yohanan 11, from John 11. Now a man was ill, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Lazarus, of course, was their brother. The sister sent word to Yeshua saying, Rabbi, the one you love is ill. When Yeshua heard this, he said, this illness is not to end in death. But it is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Do you know what the Hebrew of the glory of God means? It's as if Yeshua had literally said, this illness is not to end in death. But it is so God can manifest His very essence. So God can reveal His very nature. Through this situation. Continuing, Now Yeshua loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he remained where he was for two days more. Then after this, he said to his taludim, Let us go back to Judea. Our friend Lazarus is asleep. Hmm. Asleep? Kind of like Samuel? But I am going to awaken him. So the Tayudim said to him, Rabbi, if he's just asleep, then he's fine. Although Yeshua was talking about Lazarus' death. They thought he meant ordinary sleep. So Yeshua said to them clearly, Lazarus has died. And I'm glad for you that I was not there. That you may believe. Let us go to him. When Yeshua arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, brothers and sisters, listen. It was a strong Jewish folk belief that when a person died, his soul, his nephesh, departed from his body, but kind of hovered above the grave and then went to the afterlife at the beginning of day three. Now now again, brothers and sisters, this is a folk belief. This is not Scripture. This is not theology. But it does drive the point home of why Yeshua waited four days. You see, in the eyes and minds of all the mourners, Lazarus' soul was long gone. When Martha heard that Yeshua was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary sat at home. Martha said to Yeshua, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of Adonai, he'll give you. Yeshua said to her, Your brother will rise. Martha, and in this part she's kind of echoing what we just read in Daniel 12, replied, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Yeshua told her, I am resurrection. I am life. Wait a minute, Wayne, didn't you leave out the these? No, I didn't. I am resurrection. I am life in the Semitic language that Yeshua spoke. Whoever believes in me, even those who are dead will live and everyone who is now alive and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I've come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world. So Yeshua came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay across it. Yeshua said, Take away the stone. Martha, excuse me, Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Lord, by now there will be a terrible stench. He's been dead for four days, echoing that folk belief I just told you about. Yeshua said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory in this? So they took away the stone, and Yeshua raised his eyes to heaven and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd here, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me." You see, brothers and sisters, when Moses, when Joshua, when Elisha, when Elijah performed miracles, they prayed to God for his intervention. But when Yeshua performed miracles, incarnating the 100% power of the Almighty, Eternal One, he did not need any intervention. He simply says, thank you for hearing me. And when he said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had been dead came out, tied hand to foot with burial bands, and his face was wrapped in cloth. So Yeshua said to them, untie him and let him go. Do you guys remember how Eric introduced the day this morning? Visitors, come downstairs and eat oneg with us. Us Jews, we love to eat. Remember, A Greco-Roman would have had absolutely no problem with the idea that there are dismembered ghosts wandering around the earth. Now, to Jews, the idea of ghosts and spirits without bodies were just, you know, just simply demons. Spiritual and bodily resurrection was the hope. And what's the proof that a body lives to a Jew? It eats. Ghosts do not eat. So when is the next time that we see our friend Lazarus? In the very next chapter in John 12. I'll read it to you. Six days before Passover, Yeshua came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Yeshua had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him and Martha served while Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Yeshua. Amen? I want to close today by bringing up the fact that even before the lifetime of Yeshua, the assuredness of resurrection had even made its way into daily Jewish liturgy. There's a, a favorite Liturgical prayer of mine. Maybe you've heard it once or twice or a hundred times. Atagi Atarav You, O oh Lord, are mighty forever you raise the dead. You are mighty to save. You sustain the living with grace, resurrect the dead with abundant mercy, uphold the falling, heal the sick, set free those in bondage, and keep faith with those that sleep in the dust. Who is like you, master of mighty deeds? And who can compare to you, king, who causes death and restores life and makes salvation to sprout. And you are faithful to resurrect the dead. Blessed are you, O Lord, who resurrects the dead. In this simple prayer, there are six, arguably as many as nine, uh, allusions to resurrection and the afterlife. In this simple prayer, is the extraordinarily powerful and comforting acknowledgement that the sovereign God of Israel and the world holds in His hand the very essence of life itself. And Yeshua, by resurrecting Lazarus bodily and whole, demonstrates directly that God's love is infinitely greater than even death. And by manifesting God's love, Yeshua gives us all clear and definite hope in resurrection and in life everlasting. No other religion nor faith in history has ever assured its believers of such a certain hope of eternal life that He provides through His own crucifixion and resurrection. So how is He different? How is He different than all those would-be, flash-in-the-pan messiahs that I opened the sermon with? No other prophet nor holy man has ever held the power of life itself in His hand but Yeshua, the Messiah. You see, Yeshua's tomb is the only empty one, Shabbat Shalom.